There we go. Good morning. Um, what, what we're going to do is we're going to start with a video to explain. My name is Frank. Uh, like mentioned by Pastor Gary, I am with the ministry called Reasons for Hope. Um, we just got off being off the road for the past, uh, when I say we, my wife and I, uh, we spent our entire summer at camps with youth. And then we go around the country and we speak and we give people reasons for hope that are in the person of Jesus by giving biblical answers. But sometimes a video can say it way better than I can. So I'm going to share a quick video, and then we'll dive into our topic for today. Hey, Christian, you're a bigot. Why can't you just let people love who they want to love, huh? Do you realize that it's your beliefs that are causing people so much pain? You're a fool. I mean, show me your God. Where did he come from? Who made him? Ever heard of something called science? And if he's so good, why all the evil, the rape, the murder, the genocide? Oh, you don't know, do you? Well. Oh. There you go. You're, you're going to quote me some old English from a book that you don't even understand. Do you know how many contradictions are in the Bible? Do you really think it hasn't changed over the years? It's a man-made book. Explain to me cavemen, dinosaurs, evolution. Explain to me how all the races of the world came from just two people. And Oh yeah, there you go. You're telling me that you figured out the meaning of life at your age. Come on, give me one good reason why I should believe what you believe. our desire to be able to give people the reasons for hope that exist within God's Word, because the world has a lot of questions. Amen? And, and so our desire is to not just give answers, but to give biblical answers to the questions that they're asking. But i got to greet you officially where I am from first by saying aloha. That was weak. Let's try one more time. Aloha. aloha. Nice. That was pretty robust. Uh, so today what we're going to be talking about is we're going to be talking about, we're going to be going out of, of Luke chapter 9. If you have a Bible and you want to open it to Luke 9, you can. All of the presentation that I'm going to be going through has all of the verses that we'll be covering on it. And how many of you in here are note taker type people? Promise you, you will get a cramp because we will cover that much ground. So if you would like a copy of the presentation in its entirety, all you have to do is uh, go up to my wife, April, afterwards, she's right back there, and uh, give her your email address, or I can give you my email address, whatever works, and you shoot me an email, say I'd like a copy of the presentation, I'll shoot you a PDF of it in its entirety. That way you can have it. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about the idea that there are things that get in the way of following Jesus at times in this world. We're going to start with one of our debunked videos. This is number seven in our series, Salvation Can Be Earned debunked. Check this out. How you doing? That's good. Now let's get right to the point because there's a lot to unpack. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, I paraphrase for brevity. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second here. Seems pretty harsh. I mean, where's the happy-go-lucky, cheek-turning, white conservative lamb holding everybody's okay genie in a bottle Jesus? We slap on our greeting cards on Christmas and Easter. What in the world is going on here? Why does he say depart from me when they did all these amazing things in his name? And why won't everyone who says, Lord, Lord, enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, the answer is found in that question, my friends, wrapped up in a riddle, spun as a metaphor, and delivered here today forthwith at breakneck speed. Lots of people think that salvation depends on their good deeds outweighing their bad deeds. Like for some reason, God will overlook the 1,001 bad things you did if for some reason and somehow you did 1,002 good things. 
A lot of other people know they haven't done enough good things, so they think if they simply say a prayer, walk down an aisle when emotional music is playing, and say four hallelujahs after they do a bad thing, then, well, hey, God will like them a little more for their religious behavior, forget about all their sins, and open the pearly gates. Well, both of these views, which are really the same view, is exactly what's being addressed in our Matt 7 passages. Look at it. These people that called to Jesus said, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do mighty works? We, 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 all the way home. You see that? The pronoun is wrong, baby. And Jesus is letting them know that. He's saying there ain't no we when it comes to salvation from the wrath of God. There's only I. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the resurrection of life. I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. According to Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Salvation from what? Well, from the wrath of God, from spending eternity in a place called hell, which I get nobody likes to talk about these days, but hey, we got to say it like it is, friendo. And belief is not just a mental affirmation of the facts. No, 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 no. It's placing your complete trust in the person and finished work of Jesus. That means salvation has nothing to do with our righteousness, because according to Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. And in case that isn't clear enough, Isaiah 64.6 says all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Well, okay, let's hammer this home. In Luke 18, two men went into the temple to pray, and one said, I'm glad I'm not like those sinners who do worse things than me. I mean, I do all kinds of good things that people see, like smiling and saying pious things and praying. I go to church. I even give money and tithe. I even fast. All in all, I'm a pretty good guy, right? The other guy wouldn't even lift up his eyes. He beat on his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, it's that guy, the chest beater, who went away justified. Then a rich dude comes up to Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice the pronoun. After some chit-chat, the rich man walked away sad because he realized he couldn't earn, buy, or achieve eternal life his way. People then ask Jesus, well, who can be saved then? To which Jesus replies, well, there's nothing anybody can do to inherit eternal life. It's impossible. Salvation is only possible if God does something. And what God did is send his only begotten son into the world so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So let me ask you, are you the first dude in the temple, the rich man who walks away sad, the religious dude who presents all the great things that they've done? Or do you agree with God that you are a sinner in need of a savior who cries out for mercy and puts your trust in the saving work of Jesus? Time to do some serious soteriological soul searching, seeking scripture sufficient solution, I'd say. Because this idea that we can do good things to gain God's grace or inherit eternal life by our own merit, or that our salvation is earned by walking down an aisle or any other way, has been debunked. Adios. Amen. Really fast paced, but the idea is this. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. Uh, we actually have 24 of these videos available for free on our website. Uh, different topics, obviously. If anybody's interested in getting that information on how you can get this, as well as a lot of other free material uh, that we have available electronically, uh, it's as simple as sending a text. And if you'd like to, you can do it now. If you'd like to keep it in your mind, you can do it later. But the idea is this, you would just send a text message, open your texting app, and you're gonna text 51555. That's the number that you'll text it to. And the message that you will text is adios space Frank. Adios is the punchline word at the end of all of our videos, and therefore, adios, space, and Frank is who you heard it from. That way we know where we heard it from, and, and or I should say the ministry knows where, where you got it because they know where I speak every time I speak. Um, and then you'll get a link back that's going to be sent pretty quick. Once you get the link, you click on the link, you fill in whatever information you want us to have. If you don't want us to have the information, don't put it in that particular blank. We just want to kind of know who's partnering with us, and when we say partnering, who's praying for us, and who we can send information to when we get a new book, when we get a new free resource, a new video, anything like that. We contact you and kind of do it that way. There are tons of things that are available on our uh, platform, uh, including the app. If you have the ability to download uh, the app, we have it available on Apple, Google Play, 
uh, Roku, all of the platforms. Uh, type in Reasons for Hope. It's a black background with the blue asterisk, and you'll get our app, and it has all of our information on there. Today, it starts with a white flag. Salvation cannot be earned because none of us would choose to follow Jesus without his first intervening in our lives and calling us. Therefore, we have to be willing to surrender all that we think, all that we feel, all that we know to him who is worthy of our lives. Amen? We're going to be in Luke chapter uh, 9, 57 to 62 will be our main passage. And it says, now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another said, follow, uh, uh, then he said to another, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Then another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid farewell to them who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. During his time on earth, Jesus called certain people to follow him permanently as Messiah. Other people he uh, called didn't follow, and some did. So there were some who embraced the calling, some who rejected that calling. But whenever he called people, he used this same three-syllable, two-word command, follow me. Not follow religion, not follow church, follow me, Jesus. That was his command. Uh, to explain this, we'll briefly look at the calling of one particular person, Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, here's his two words, follow me. So he arose and he followed him. Uh, Mark records this as well. He passed by Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. Luke records the same account. After these things, they went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him, the him being Jesus. But it wasn't just the 12. All of the Gospels record that when he called people to follow him, he actually used these same two words. Matthew 16, when Jesus, uh, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross, and there's those words again, follow me. Uh, Mark chapter 8, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Luke, once again, same wording, follow me. John, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there he may be, uh, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. This word follow in the Greek is the word akalotheo, which means to imitate or to follow the leader or be a disciple. Anybody in here ever play follow the leader? Whatever the leader does, you do. The leader raises a hand, you raise a hand. If the leader walks a certain way, you walk a certain way. That's what this word follow means. It means to be a direct copy of the original or the leader. 
Uh, it's a present imperative tense. Some of you are like, man, why you got to get into English on a Sunday? Because whenever Jesus used this word, he spoke it in a present imperative tense. What that means is that it was an example. That, that the, the idea that he was setting forth was that it needed to be something that was continuously done. It wasn't just a one-time occurrence. To give you an idea of this, John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And in fact, that's one of the names of God that we know, right? He is the great I am. How many of you have heard that expression before? What that means is that Jesus, it not was, not just is, not just is going to be, but he am. In, in other words, and it doesn't make sense phonet, uh, English-wise, but it makes sense in my mind. Jesus constantly amming. He am. He, he, it's not just a past. It's not just a present. It's not just a future. He am. And so what he is calling us to do is am along with him. I am a disciple. What does that mean? That means my past has been forgiven, my present is forgiven, my future is forgiven, and therefore I am all in when it comes to following Jesus. Amen? Because there's a difference between contribution and commitment. Jesus was not seeking a more momentary somebody contributing out of convenience, but rather what he was seeking was a lifelong commitment. Because there's a big difference. Here's where I insert my joke of the day. A pig and a chicken were walking along a highway when they saw a billboard advertising good breakfast foods. Depicted was a large plate containing ham and eggs with two pieces of toast alongside. The ad boldly stated, eat a wholesome breakfast every day. And it was sponsored by a local food co-op in the area. So the chicken turns to the pig and says, wow. Isn't it wonderful that we can help so many by providing healthy meals for humans? So the pig quickly looks back at the chicken and says, well, that's easy for you to say. After all, yours is just a contribution. Mine requires total commitment. In other words, the chicken can just contribute an egg. But the pig would have to lay down his life to provide for those people. What Jesus is looking for is not a contribution but an absolute total commitment. That it's not about us no more. It's about him. Sadly, a lot of the church has strayed away from this. What I mean is, we, it's almost been so easy that we say, well, if you raise your hand, you're saved, which is, which is true if that's what's going on in your heart. But that will be followed by a lifelong commitment. Amen? Uh, in fact, a contemporary evangelism, I'll read this quote, which views becoming a Christian as an emotional or even impulsive decision, a feeling-induced act which people are led by fiery preaching, heart-rending stories, and emotion-stirring music. The goal of contemporary evangelistic methodology is to induce people to seize the moment, pray a prayer, make a decision to accept Christ. But Jesus never tried to move people emotionally into a moment of crisis which, in which they would accept him. There is no record in the New Testament of Jesus or the apostles counseling someone to make a momentary choice or pray a prayer in order to be saved momentarily. When the Lord invited a person to receive forgiveness and salvation by faith in him, he did not want the emotion of a moment feeling guilt, fear, or desire for a better life, 
but a careful, thought-out, lifetime commitment to himself as Lord, to Jesus and to the apostles as well, following Christ salvifically was not an event, but it was a way of life. In other words, there needed to be a constant change. And what he discusses here in this passage is some of the things that are required of us when we make that constant change. We'll discuss the first one. We need to be willing to give up personal comfort. What do I mean? We'll go back to our text. Luke chapter 9, verse 57 and 58. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So as they're walking along the road, someone says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Matthew goes into a little bit more detail than Luke does. Matthew tells us that this guy was a scribe. It says a certain scribe came up to him and says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. For those of us who may not know, uh, scribes were highly esteemed experts in the Mosaic and Rabbinic law, uh, which they interpreted authoritatively for the common people. And so what this guy was saying was, it would look good for me to follow you, Jesus. So it, it, it's a good symbiotic relationship. It's good for you because you got a scribe following you, and it's good for me. Uh, so he comes up and he tells Jesus, I tell you what, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now many believe this guy witnessed the miracles that happened earlier, and that he was eager to join himself with Jesus. Uh, he acknowledged Jesus as rabbi, or teacher, and wanted to join his entourage, and so he would be called his student. Now keep in mind that he said this publicly, even though most of his friends wouldn't have been stoked with this. So there was a level of interest that was going on in his mind. But this would be a huge thing if a single confession meant anything. What I mean by that is, by this public declaration, I will follow you, if that's all that was required, he would have been good to go. But Jesus saw beneath his mask of enthusiasm, and he decided to burst his bubble by asking him a question, by giving him a statement that would cause him to rethink things. What do I mean? Luke chapter 9, 58, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's kind of interesting. We move in this conversation from this guy saying, hey, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. And all of a sudden, he starts talking about foxes and birds. And, and it almost seems kind of disjointed. Uh, so what on earth does he mean? What, why did Jesus bring this up? That should give us a question. Uh, so I looked up some things. Foxes are actually very common in Israel. So much so that there's holes all over the place in Israel. Some people say, as you're climbing through uh, terrain that's not a well-worn path, you've got to be careful that you don't step in a foxhole and, and break your ankle. That there's a lot of holes where foxes dwell. And so these foxes that are all over the place have places to go, places to sleep, places to raise their young, places to relax for a little bit. He then says the same about birds which are equally as common in Israel, that birds have nests. What do they do in the nest? Well, they're with their family. They relax. They, they, they raise their young. They take care of people. And then he makes this statement. 
But the Son of Man, the Messiah, who is God incarnate, doesn't even have a place to lay his own head. In other words, what Jesus was saying was the Creator had fewer creature comforts than the animals that he created. That's mind-blowing. In fact, he had just recently been denied lodging in Samaria as he walked through there. If you were to go to the passage right before this in Luke chapter 9, it says, when it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village by the Samaritans to prepare for him. In other words, they were like trying to find a place that he could have a little rest, but they, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his, say, uh, his face was set for the journey for Jerusalem. Because the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other. And so therefore, oh, you're one of those guys? No, we don't got room for you here. And so what's interesting is why did he bring it up now? Why did he bring up this fact to this scribe? He knew for this guy, self-denial stood in the way. That you know what? This guy needed to have comfort. He was not just interested in what he would give. He was actually interested in what he would get. Salvation was about him rather than being about Jesus. And so this stood as a barrier. And yet Jesus actually taught us to be willing to let go of us for the sake of him. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, greatest sermon ever preached, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hungry and who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. What Jesus was saying is that as a believer, we should expect to be more rejected, not more accepted. That there's a cost to being a disciple. He even goes on in Matthew chapter 10, where he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in the synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in the hour that you should speak it. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And then brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father is child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, you will, not, uh, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Why? And then he explains the why. Because a disciple is not above his teacher. Remember that follow the leader thing? If you're going to be just like me, understand that this comes with the territory. Disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, or the devil, how much more will they call those of his household? In other words, there's going to be a cost, and we should expect sacrifices and not just benefits. Hear me clear. The heavenly benefits far outweigh the earthly sacrifices that we make. Amen? But we, we have to go in knowing 
that sacrifices are part of it. But there were two more guys. The second guy, personal riches stood in his way of following Jesus. What do we mean? Look at what it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 59 to 60. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Kind of an interesting thing to say. Jesus turns to another man who had probably just heard the conversation that he had with the first guy. And he challenges him with his usual two-word, three-syllable sentence, follow me. And even this guy had a condition. Okay, I'll follow you, but first, let me go bury my father. Now, some have taken this passage out of context and tried to make Jesus seem like an ogre. Right? Man, he wouldn't even let a guy bury his dad. Right? But that's simply not true. What, what do we mean? Well, from the beginning, it was the son's duty to bury their father. It, it was a son's responsibility to make sure their dad was laid to rest properly. Uh, Abraham was buried by his sons. Uh, we, we see that clearly in Genesis 25. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zor, the Hittite. We see that Isaac was buried by his sons. Uh, Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being of old and of full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. We see that then Jacob was buried by his sons. Uh, Genesis chapter 50. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, the property for a burial place. So every son was expected to bury their dad. So, and now there were a few exceptions. I want to be clear biblically. There were a couple of people who couldn't do this. One was the high priest. The high priest was not allowed to do this because he was not allowed to touch a dead body. Uh, in fact, uh, Leviticus 21, he who is the high priest among his brethren on whose head the anointing oil was poured and who is consecrated to wear the garment shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes nor shall he go near any dead body. So the high priest was not allowed to physically be near when they buried his father. And also those who took a Nazarite vow. They couldn't do that as well. Uh, Numbers chapter 6 uh, has that, that all of the days he shall separate himself uh, to the Lord and he shall not go near a dead body. So the idea is once again that there were a couple of ex examples of people who couldn't do this, but for the most part everybody was expected to do this. So what was the problem? Why, why when this guy said, hey, let me go bury my dad, was it a bad thing? The, the, why, why, why did Jesus say, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to leave allowance for that? Why? Well, because his dad was not yet dead. That's kind of a bold statement. Because some of you are like, well, how do you know that? I'm going to use scripture to interpret scripture because that is the best thing that we can use to interpret other scripture. Amen? What's pretty interesting, the Jews did not embalm. Jewish custom dictated, therefore, that they bury their dead immediately. 
To illustrate this, I'll use a couple of examples. Lazarus, Jesus goes, right? Lazarus passes away. He goes and he sees his two sisters. And, and, and when you do the math, it says that he was already dead for four days when Jesus had gotten there. And they said, if you had come, he wouldn't have died. You know, and they go through that whole story. But the idea is this. When you backtrack, uh, and he says, how long has he been in there? They say he's been in there for four days. So in other words, they buried him the day he died. True? Makes sense. Then what we see is if you were to read the account in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira, when you read that account, what happens is they, they go and, and Ananias, he lies before the Lord, right? And, and he goes, yeah, I sold the land for this much. And, and he, he goes and he, he sells the land. And as he sells the land, he, he goes ahead and, and uh, he, he lies. And the next thing you know, he, is, uh, he's, he drops dead. And so they go out and they bury him. And then his wife comes in and she continues the lie. In fact, so much so that when she continues the lie, she drops dead too. But then it, it says that, you know, that, hey, here you are and, and, and you're continuing in this same lie. And they said that the feet of those who buried your husband have just come back. And now they're going to bury you as well. So the Jews were people who buried their dead the day they died. What many biblical scholars believe is that this man, what he was saying was wait until after my dad dies and then I'll get a little something. I'll get an inheritance. And then I can afford to follow Jesus. Because it would be easy to follow Jesus if you have money to cover the cost while you're following Jesus. True? And so what most scholars believe is that that's what this man's argument was. I'll quote John MacArthur. He said, what this man was really saying was that he wanted to delay following the Lord until after his father died and he received his inheritance. He knew that Jesus was moving out of the area and to leave now might cause him to lose out on his share of the father's estate. Unlike the 12, he was not willing to leave everything and follow Jesus. And he was an example of the seed which fell among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. So I want to be clear. I don't know for sure that it was money as the primary reason why he did not want to follow Jesus. But what I am saying is that most biblical scholars believe this is the reasoning, and we know that he was not willing to follow Jesus. True? Because this story is written about us in the negative aspect, and Jesus addressed it. So therefore, we knew that he wasn't willing to go. Uh, once again, I wanted to be clear. I cannot absolutely 100% validate that it was about money, but most people believe the inheritance is what was stopping him from being absolutely committed. Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, he's not talking about physically dead, because there's no way a physically dead person can bury another physically dead person. What he's talking about is the spiritually dead, those who don't want to follow Jesus, those who have no relationship. Because people who are occupied with this world have different priorities than people who are occupied with the kingdom of heaven. Amen? And, and, and so he wanted his priority to be on the kingdom of heaven, not just on the things of this world. Ungodly people, 
they're preoccupied with ungodly matters. Godly people, they're occupied with godly matters. So we covered two of the guys, but there was a third. He let personal relationships get in the way of his following Jesus. What do I mean? It says in verse 61 and 62, Another also said to him, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go bid farewell to them who are at my house. Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So in other words, this guy, and, and, and he joins the conversation, and he decided to do it on his own. I'm the type of guy that I kind of measure out the risk-reward thing before I do something. If I just saw the other two people have a conversation with Jesus and it didn't go well, I don't know that I would volunteer my, my you know, in front of everybody, hey, Lord, I'll follow you too, because I know it, those guys, it was like, nah, it didn't go good for them. But, but he does, and, and he says, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go bid farewell to those who are at my house. He had only one request. It seemed reasonable enough. Let me go say goodbye to a few loved ones before we leave. In other words, he just wanted to delay or stall following Jesus long enough so he could go put a few nice bows on some of the relationships that he had. The problem, once again, wasn't his action. The problem was his heart. What do we mean? Because that's what Jesus is getting to in all of these passages. It's heart issues that are going on in the people. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Obviously, Jesus was not saying that you should hate your family. But what he is saying is this, your love for me and commitment to me should be so high that your love for your family pales in comparison to your consecration to me. And it goes back to asking the question, are we willing to be selfless or are we still struggling with being selfish? For this man, he simply wanted to just go say goodbye. The hard part is, Jesus knew that if he went home to say goodbye, he wasn't coming back. That his family meant more to him than Jesus did. Remember, that's the problem when we make a decision based on impulse and contribution and not total commitment. Total commitment means, Lord, I will go wherever, whenever, and I'm all in. I need you to be with me. And once again, if you have a nuclear family, that means your family is a part of that. Jesus said to him this, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, so we need to be completely dedicated to the task at hand. In other words, what he was asking is, how can we go ahead straight if we're constantly looking back at what we left behind? How can we be focused on where Jesus is taking us if we're co constantly grasping hold of the past? Uh, I, I just, you know, one of the shortest verses, remember Lot's wife. She looked back and life got real salty. Right? You know, that she turned into a pillar of salt, longing for the world rather than the promises of God. Because it's impossible to follow God with a divided heart. And this man's heart, as well as the other two, they were clearly divided. I'll close with some examples. It comes down to personal surrender. 
What I mean by that, and, and the numbers that I'm going to show you are not correct anymore. We've actually been to 24 states. I've spoken over 250 times. 43,000 miles I hit on the way up here. And spoken to almost 18,000 people in the past year and two months. Why? Not because I'm good. I miss being home. I miss my friends and my family. I miss a lot of things. But God gave us the opportunity to go. And April and I said, we're going. What do I mean by that? I'm 53 years old, which for some of you are like, well, that seems pretty young. Uh, if, if you do the math, my life is two-thirds over. That's just the reality. It is. What am I going to do with the last third of it? And so for April and I, we've been given the opportunity to go and tell people about Jesus for the last third of our life. What better a move or calling is there than that? Amen? Easy to say. i got to admit, hard to do. I had to give up personal comfort. What do I mean? I've been on the road 300 to 10 to 315 days every year or in a year. I miss my bed because you know there's no place quite like your bed. Amen? I miss that. I have slept on the floor of fifth wheels. I have slept uh, in a silo. I have slept uh, in, in some nice places too. So I don't want to act like it's all been bad. But, but, but I, man, comfort goes out the window. I, I, I miss the climate of Hawaii. So does April. Especially because when we have downtime now, we're in Minnesota. So you guys get it, right? Um, this was last February, or this past February. I had to make April do it because it was so cold. I wasn't going. Now nah, I'm just playing. We both did it. But the idea is we were blowing snow on a day that it was negative 26. I, as a Hawaii boy, have never experienced anything like that before. And I was like, Lord, are you sure you called us to this? And, and, and so, yeah, I had to give up food that I like. For those of you who are like, oh, raw fish. Raw fish is my favorite thing on the planet. I would eat it every day if I could. And up here, when I say up here, in the mainland, I have not found any good raw fish places yet as far as they make poke, like Hawaiian people like it. And it's been a rough go. So if you know of any, let me know, because I'm all for trying it out. But I haven't found any. But all of this, we have to be willing to kiss goodbye personal riches. We had to be willing to kiss goodbye. What do I mean? Well, April and I went from a two-income family, which you have to in Hawaii, down to one. That's been insanely challenging. Um, trusting God that he was going to provide all along the way. I had to get rid of my toys. We, we were talking this morning about bikes in um, church. Uh, somebody who was riding a bike and saying things. This was one of my bikes gone. I will probably never own a motorcycle again. But it's one of those things, if God has called us, then we have to be willing to kiss it goodbye. Personal relationships. I'm not going to show pictures of this. You know why? It'll get me too emotional. What I mean by that is, I had to say goodbye to my mom. And four months after I left, she was diagnosed with cancer. And I had to really contemplate. Lord, have you really called us? And, and, and 
I will say this, and it's all to the... My mom does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. But I will say this. God in his mercy, after six months of treatments, removed the cancer from her. So she couldn't thank me, because I'm usually the kid who would take her to all the doctor's appointments and do all those things. She only had one person she could turn to, and that was Jesus. I'm praying that she sees what he did for her, and that she'll see that and give him glory and credit. Amen. But, but that was rough. I had to say goodbye to my friends. I've lived in Hawaii all my life. And leaving people you know and you can trust, that's hard. It's kind of interesting because we talked about this. Um, all of Sue and her family, I've known them since Hawaii. And so it's kind of weird that here we are this week and we get to spend a couple of hours together. And, and, and God has allowed me and April and I these snippets of time with, with Ohana that we can be with people that we're continuing the story with and it's not just all brand new people that you're starting from scratch with. Fellowship. I miss my church. I was a pastor for 25 years. I miss the church family and the knowing what everybody's going through and, and, and know them knowing what I'm going through and just being there for one another. And, and for those of you who, who and when you're not in church for a while, you feel it. You feel it. The Bible doesn't actually describe what happened to these three men, but they were probably like the rich young ruler and decided not to follow Jesus. Why? Because they wanted to hold on to earthly things more. How do we know this? Because their examples are all written in a negative perspective. And so, I'm going to bottom line it. Those who are unwilling to follow Jesus because we do not want to part with comfort or riches or relationships, or anything else for that matter. It's going to be rough for us. Because Jesus said that these people don't enter the kingdom of heaven. What do we mean? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And here we go again, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. Jesus is calling. And his desire is for us to follow are we willing to follow? Or are we stuck with things that get in the way? Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you. That you are so good. And, and, and we sang this morning the hymn, Tis so sweet to follow Jesus. Do we really mean that? Or did we just sing it because it was words on a screen? Did we vocalize words with our mouth? Or are they truly resonating in our hearts? Because why should we not be willing to give up that which we cannot keep? To inherit that which we will never lose. And so in short, Lord, we today want to give you all. We will follow wherever, whenever. We'll be willing to let go of the things that get in the way and press towards you. As you were willing to let go of things that got in the way as you pressed towards us and came to this earth to die for us. And maybe you're here 
and you're just struggling with letting some things go, I'd like to pray with you. And if that's you, I'm not going to ask anything fancy, but I just want you to raise your hand and go, I need to let some things go. And I need Jesus to take over. Is there anybody here that needs to do that? Lord, for those that have raised their hands, I pray that you would help us to let go of the things that get in the way and grab hold of you. You promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. That you love us. That the reason you've come to take hold of us is to take us home. And so we pray, Lord, that we will clutch you and never let go. In short, Help us to be rid of ourselves so we can be full of you. We pray this in Jesus' name.